morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for June 23rd, 2021, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators in the last few days. First up, what are agent aggregators? Second, are students more optimistic about U.S. study? And third, how can we understand the many layers of India when it comes to student recruitment? So well, those are the three questions we're going to look at today. And before we do that, I want to give a special shout out, obviously, to those watching live here on Facebook. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get your interactions on the day of the chats to see where you are and what thoughts are, are guiding you in these, uh, these interesting days we live in. Uh, next, uh, obviously, those who take the time out uh, of their weekly schedules to watch on repeat, either on the Facebook channel or our YouTube channel uh, for SMIE Consulting, uh, and those that download our podcast each week, the podcast version of the Midweek Roundup uh, for an audio-only experience, uh, listening to our thoughts on international education. So appreciate you being a part of the journey each week. For those that are unfamiliar with the Midweek Roundup, what we do is each uh, Monday, uh, SMIE Consulting puts out an e-newsletter uh, that is called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and I dropped the link of the most recent edition of that uh, e-newsletter into the chat uh, on the Facebook page, but you can also find and subscribe to it at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, and you can find an archive of all past editions of the newsletter, as well as uh, links to, down, to subscribe to the podcast or uh, get past versions of this roundup. So thanks very much for being a part of it, uh, the roundup today. Let's get right into the first question. What are agent aggregators? Now, we've covered this in the newsletter quite a bit over the last three or four months because, frankly, it's gotten, it seems to be the hot new sexy thing in international education these days. And oftentimes it's that shiny object that people get drawn to and want to explore more. And some institutions are uh, jumping in with both feet to uh, using agent aggregators. But before we do that, let's step back and take a look at what actually are agent aggregators. The re, the, what prompted this particular question today is a, there was a panel last week at a, at a Pi News webinar uh, on the role of uh, student recruitment innovators uh, debating digital disruption. And digital disruption is uh, basically anything that is uh, using online tools uh, to perform similar functions that other other uh, on the ground or in-person people have done in the past. Now, agent aggregators itself has been used uh, in recent months to apply to these new platform companies. Uh, when, when I say platform companies, I'm talking about Applyboard, I'm talking about Adventus IO, I'm talking about others like that that have uh, seen value in taking and when they've had some substantial uh, venture capital put behind them as ways to um, uh, whether massification of uh, international student mobility uh, is uh, is happening uh, already but it's adding to that and allowing basically apply board to become a super agent and have uh, a variety of agents uh, that contract with them, and so they basically are the middleman 
uh, that do all the payments uh, for, for the transactions that are about to occur with students that enroll at institutions. The agents sign up to, be, uh, to direct their students to Apply Board. Uh, those students that apply through this platform to universities that are, have profiles on their site, on the Apply Board site, for example, are then compensated by Apply Board for, and Apply Board gets their revenue from uh, the institutions that sign up for memberships uh, with, uh, with Apply Board. Now, uh, there are others, other versions of these out there that have slightly different business models, but uh, this is the general, general uh, scheme here is that uh, Apply Board contracts with all these agents and contracts with the universities and serves as the kind of uh, super agent for uh, those that are uh, looking to recruit students using the platform. Uh, what that does is those that, uh, the students that come to the Apply Board site uh, will see all the, um, see all those institutions first in their searches that are connected with Apply Board that have uh, services through Apply Board. So that is the, the kind of the hook uh, that gets institutions in. Uh, and then uh, if those students apply uh, and enroll at that institution, then that's great for the university. Their payment is or for each of those students is already taken care of really through their membership uh, through Apply Board. They're not paying extra for students that enroll through the platform. So what is different uh, in terms of agent aggregators uh, is that they, when you think about it, if you're looking at that model of super agent and then all these sub agents, uh, that uh, the platforms provide that is uh, has been done frankly for decades already in the business with uh, larger agencies in bigger countries like China like India that might have multiple sub agents that work for them uh, that has been normal business practice for in, in, in international education in agency models for for years uh, but you also have um, groups like IDP IDP is kind of the granddaddy of them all when it comes to agent aggregators. And they provide uh, the same kind of services across a range of countries uh, where they have agents in place that are IDP agents that are working for IDP to recruit students for IDP uh, member institutions that uh, either obviously they found, were founded in Australia to recruit for all the Australian universities. Uh, that's obviously uh, still very much a part of what they do. But they are also have, in the last decade or so, have been recruiting for British, uh, Canadian, and U.S. institutions. Uh, so this is something that IDP uh, has a role that they played since the mid-80s for serving as a super agent for all for, and with a number of sub uh, agencies in different countries that, re that represent them and the institutions that they represent. So IDP right now has over 600 uh, uh, university partners worldwide uh, that are having students directed to to them uh, through IDP. So that's that's another version of it. A more recent one, probably in the last 10-15 years, that most uh, most people in the U.S. are aware of and have been around for for 15 so or year more years is the pathway provider model, uh, where uh, companies like Into, like Shorelight, like uh, Navitas, Study Group, uh, Cambridge Education Group recently uh, coming onto the scene, King's Education, uh, that have their own network of agents around the world that recruit students for their member institutions that have, that have pathway provider programs for them. 
uh, either on their campus or in uh, uh, third, third party locations. So these aggregators have existed for a number of years. And really, frankly, the, what's happening now is, as we've seen accelerated with, uh, with the pandemic, is everything has gone online. And online is seen as, well, if you don't have, if you're not online first or digital first, then you're behind. And then people are not traveling and they want the simpler and quicker approaches to uh, find students that will, are willing to come. That's, that's a model that really um, is attractive for those that are looking in it for the quick fix or the simpler solutions. Uh, there are challenges uh, that um, this article that the Pi News uh, re reports on, uh, reporting on in a, a webinar that they hosted, uh, that hosted, was hosted by um, a number of uh, panelists that are in this agent aggregator mix, uh, these technical, technological disruptors uh, that we're talking about people from uh, from TC, uh, from well, uh, from study portals, from apply board and other things, uh, other models out there that are, are very much in the ed tech disruptor space. So uh, it seemed to be a little bit uh, self-indulgent in terms of uh, in terms of the tone of the article and the webinar itself in terms of the, these uh, these ed tech disruptors saying yeah we are we are the be all and end all but the re reality is uh, these companies um, take there are part, parts of what they do that take away uh, the role of face-to-face uh, -face interaction uh, because the uh, though these the students that are being pushed to these sites uh, through their individual agents are not necessarily uh, getting the interaction with uh, with the agents or with the universities that uh, that they might normally have had in a traditional agent uh, university relationship. Uh, they are also uh, universities also lose a lot of control because there's they don't know always which agents are pushing students and how well they are representing their institution uh, and they're not really representing their institution because the contracts are with the ply board not with their agencies uh, their they, the control is really the is um, is what's missing uh, and some institutions uh, I know a couple here in Ohio that are exploring relationships with some of these ed tech uh, disruptors uh, and these agent aggregators, and that seems to be a, a legitimate concern on the institutional side is losing that control over uh, what messages about their institutions are being delivered to students uh, that are coming through these agents, these amorphous group of agents that uh, the institutions don't know uh, from Adam necessarily, and those agents don't necessarily know them and their processes and their programs and all the things that you expect in a traditional agent relationship. So aggregators are certainly a regular part of uh, the conversations these days uh, in international ed circles and certainly they're they're nothing new but the newness of what these ed tech disruptors are bringing to the conversation certainly has uh, developed generated a number of articles over the past five or six months uh, related to uh, their whether they're good or bad or uh, the too impersonal uh, too technologically driven uh, that are, are, are good conversations that need to be had uh, when it comes to determining what, where your institution wants to, to sit with regards to, um, to enrolling uh, international students from abroad using these, uh, these new platforms. 
technology is always an answer. It's not the only answer, but it certainly needs to be an important tool in your arsenal as you uh, include uh, and improve your international education, international admissions, recruitment pro processes. Uh, and that's what it really comes down to is processes. And that's uh, something I talk about is uh, with my client universities, and we'll be having a couple conversations about this, this very topic today, is where will your strategies take you? Um, and what, uh, what are we investing in in these uh, as you build a plan, as you build the f uh, capacity on campus, as you build the resources you will need to, to uh, bring in those students and to maintain those students while they're here and to make sure that they're, they're enjoying their time. Uh, and that's something that um, with, after all the, uh, all the uh, all, when all the dust settles from all the excitement of these new newness of these platforms, the reality is until you see the quality of students coming through uh, and not just looking at all the applications that a particular platform has generated for institutions, it's the results really, how it's the retention rate of those students that eventually do get placed through these aggregator platforms. Uh, what is the care for the individual student uh, throughout their journey, not only in the admissions process, but once they're on campus, are they taken care of? It all adds up to what will make or break your, your enrollments, uh, enrollment success story on your campus. So aggregators are out there. They've been there for a number of years, but they are in new and varied forms. And it's incumbent upon institutions to really do their due diligence and understand the implications of going down certain paths when it comes to uh, establishing relationships with uh, any provider, really. But so uh, go in with your eyes wide open and uh, make sure you know what you're getting into. Uh, and that's, uh, that helps uh, at least set the tone for uh, and I'd be sure to ask the tough questions, uh, so it sets the tone for a relationship with any provider uh, that it, whether it's a year or two years or long term, uh, you want to know what you're getting. And uh, if those expectations are not met, then there needs to be get out clauses. There needs to be um, ways that uh, that uh, the situation can be uh, adjusted to your benefit, because ultimately they're the service provider. Uh, and if they're not able to meet their uh, their the expectations, then you have every reason to, to cut bait. So with aggregators, uh, we'll talk more about these, uh, these, uh, this new phenomenon in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure. But for now, let's move on to our second topic of the day, one that I always like to talk about and when I see these kind of bright light stories. Last couple weeks in the newsletter, we've been featuring highlights of a recent IIE uh, snapshot survey uh, for the spring. Uh, they did one in the fall, uh, fall enrollment snapshot survey for international education uh, week, and uh, we'll talk about the implications of this latest survey results uh, in a minute. And the question is really, are students more optimistic about U.S. study? And we've seen from a number of different sources, from IDP, from uh, QS, from a no number of other uh, in-country sources in India and China, uh, that have indicated that, yes, interest is back up in the U.S. as a result of the election, as a result of us, the U.S. coming out of the pandemic and maybe being ahead of the curve uh, for vaccinations and getting uh, back to a more normal state, whatever that may be or whatever that might look like. And there is that definite sense of optimism now. And we look at what this article, University World News article is, uh, it's titled Survey Finds Optimism on, on Return of International Students, and it's specifically uh, centered around the United States here. Uh, what it does uh, go into, some more, some more details about this survey, the high-level things are, 
86% of U.S. institutions are focused on bringing students back to campus, 86% planning some type of in-person study this fall. None of the reporting institutions intended to offer virtual only this fall. So that's encouraging. Uh, and that's certainly what students want. We, that's one thing we've heard from every survey uh, throughout the pandemic is students will make decisions based on where they can get face-to-face -face instruction because ultimately that's what international education is all about. The digital patch that everybody has been riding uh, the last year and a bit uh, when students, all colleges went online back in March, April last year, that switch uh, was a temporary fix. Uh, to allow students who wanted to enroll, who were enrolled, to continue their programs, to start their programs, but also to uh, to find find a middle ground uh, that uh, even for those that were on campus, uh, to uh, in terms of how classes are taught, uh, whether they should larger lectures should all be in person, uh, is, is probably something that's going the way of the dinosaur, and that um, online versions of those may still be continuing throughout. So there's, there's going to be, have to be a reset at some point when it comes to in-person versus hybrid uh, in the immigration regulation since uh, there are some courses that will go uh, from fully in-person to a hybrid uh, like these large lecture classes that were supplemented by smaller discussion, in-person discussion sections perhaps this last year. So we're looking at a time where this fall, this survey, 90% uh, of institutions uh, plan to offer in-person study to international students. Uh, uh, of When looking at the application volume, 43% reported increase in their international student applications for this coming fall intake, and that's almost double the, in, the increases reported by institutions a year ago. Uh, international student applications vary depending on institution type. Doctoral universities noted application increases, about 60% of them did, while majority of community colleges are still reporting declines so in international applications. So that's a little bit of a worry longer term, uh, as the, they've already been hard, hard hit during the pandemic and as our ESL programs connected to them. So that's uh, in, interesting to see that. But uh, we're talking about, with the, this IIE survey, uh, we're, the pandemic was a, a down year, obviously, for applications uh, for 2020, uh, and the fifth of institutions uh, at that point expected a similar similar rate of applications to this year. But that's 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 changed. Now, what is uh, in, also interesting? Some of the other nuggets that came out of this uh, that uh, where where institutions are, are directing a lot of their resources. And uh, when one of the questions is the finding, uh, highlighted the impact on international student exchange for the spring, uh, planning for fall and beyond. Uh, the, one of the things that was interesting, uh, most U.S. higher ed institutions, according to the survey, 77% reported funding, funding outreach and recruitment of international students at the same level or higher than uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, institutions, in terms of how they're focusing their events, online recruitment events, 73% were had participated in those. Working with current international students on other campuses, so recruiting domestically, and social media. So uh, those those have been the three drivers uh, for a lot of uh, institutional recruitment efforts over the past uh, past few months of the pandemic. Uh, what's, uh, what is interesting also as we look to arrival of new international students uh, this fall and returning of international students that were previously online, 
Uh, more than half of institutions, 64%, plan to provide vaccinations to students, faculty and staff on campus, including international students. But less than half, 45%, do not plan to require a vaccine before a student arrives. Only 14% of institutions have a definite requirement in place right now. Not to say that more won't be added in the coming weeks and months, but right now, only 14% of those that were surveyed by IIE had, had indicated they have a definite requirement for a vaccine in place. And uh, I think last week in, the, in, our, in our newsletter, we referred to, actually this week's newsletter, uh, indicated the Chronicle list that had, gets regularly updated, had about 500, 550 institutions. So still not a majority, uh, well under a majority, uh, that are not requiring it, and for various reasons that we've discussed uh, on, the, on the roundup before. But what is important, I think, uh, it's, uh, it's a time when institutions are not always thinking international first when they come up with these policies related to vaccinations. And I think there's some colleges um, that are uh, certainly creating policies that are, are, we'll talk about this more next week, uh, that are creating policies and requirements that are, are even being challenged now in, uh, in, in court. Uh, so as to whether that's, those are gonna be allowed for the fall. So uh, it, most, um, most of, the, most of the, the indications from this survey are, are certainly positive, and we're certainly looking to see more of that uh, developed in the, in the weeks and months to come as we get closer to uh, orientation dates in August, September. But uh, good news coming out on the optimism front. I think from the institutional side, we're seeing it uh, in terms of the numbers that are coming in. We're seeing it from various student surveys. So I think it, it, certainly this fall will not be any, cannot be any worse than last fall. Uh, we are, we've been seeing positive signs uh, with, in China and India with U.S. consulates uh, making uh, additional visa appointments available or being open to now having regular student visa appointments. Uh, and that's in, that's in those two top markets. That's going to drive our success as a nation with enrolling students this fall. Uh, many other countries still have some ch challenges here and there, but uh, the good news is the greater majority are now open for business uh, that are uh, important sources of students for the United States. So optimism is certainly on the uptick uh, on all levels, I think, in uh, inbound international student education here in the U.S. So let's shift gears to our final question of the day. And it's one that is, uh, uh, anyone who knows me uh, knows that uh, India has a, has a special place in my heart in terms of my, where my experience has been as an as a international student admissions person uh, in my past lives uh, in international ed, uh, in recruitment, in working with uh, uh, tour providers, in working with planning committees, uh, all the various elements, uh, individual counselors on the ground. Uh, it's a very complex market, uh, and that's something I think for the number two sending country to the United States, formerly the number one back in the early 2000s. Uh, but what I think is uh, important about India is how do we understand the many layers of it, is that you want, you want to get to what drives any, any, any audience or any market you're looking to go into. Uh, you want to find out what drives interest. And this is something that 
is absolutely 101 when it comes to planning, country level planning. And some of the institutions I'm working with now, this is where we're going to be building out country level plans that you do not re recruit the same way in India as you do in China. You do not recruit the same way in Brazil as you recruit in Nigeria. Uh, there are different strategies that work in depending on the countries uh, that you're recruiting in, how you recruit, where you recruit, uh, which, which groups you work with, what platforms you choose, what partners you uh, identify. Uh, those all matter uh, depending on the countries that you're looking at. So uh, what, when it comes to India, uh, one thing I've been encouraged with uh, lately uh, is how uh, proactive uh, the U.S. Embassy has become uh, in uh, getting PR out to, to the, through um, in-country sources, news networks about why they're, why they're opening or why they're not opening. This has been going on for obviously the pandemic's been rolling on for a while. And up until up until uh, until early May, uh, you, the consulates and embassies in India had been closed. Uh, but that, the important thing is, the embassy had been at that time, even before then, uh, were were constantly updating uh, local news media, encouraging, uh, particularly post-election, encouraging uh, folks to stay 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 calm and stay uh, keep calm and carry on on old British Empire. Uh, a tool that uh, they use effectively for years, but unfortunately, uh, uh, it, well, fortunately, it, it does have some. It, it, those words do have some impact, and I think when it comes to India and the U.S. relationship with India, the U.S. has always been seen, I think, as a very uh, welcoming country uh, for Indian uh, immigrants, Indian students, those that want to work uh, in in country, and that is a prime driver, frankly, of not just those that work in tech companies in India or U.S. For, uh, uh, locations, they hope to come to the U.S. for, for jobs, uh, but also for students that look to come for degrees, bachelor's and master's degrees, and then end up working uh, through OPT and H-1B. Uh, all of those are, are very legitimate and very, very much sought-after pathways that Indian audiences look for. And U.S. Uh, and U.S. knows that uh, any changes or pro pro uh, proposals to change work-related topics uh, impact levels of interest. Uh, there were periods where the U.S. might have been down a bit, and Australia and the U.K. were popping up. Uh, Australia is down right now because they've remained closed during uh, even at the tail end of the pandemic in, in Australia. They've not reopened uh, to 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 other countries, and there were major complaints coming out of uh, students in India that were, had enrolled in Australian universities that were having to do their classes entirely on their mobile phones, uh, and then paying as if they were in country for those same that privilege. And that's that. There are certain negatives that have have occurred over the years uh, with relationships between the U.S. Uh, the, between the U.K. and India, Australia and India, the U.S. and India that will ebb and flow where the majority of uh, Indian students go. Uh, the U.S. is still the number one destination for Indian students, but Canada's been uh, uh, chipping away at our lead there. Uh, the U.K. seen a resurgence. Uh, Australia had until recently seen a resurgence. Uh, so we're in a position now in the U.S. where I think we're seen much more favorably uh, than only other other than Canada and maybe the U.K. Um, so I think with regard to India, uh, it's important for our embassy and on the ground officials there through Education USA and uh, which they enjoys a very good relationship with the embassies and consulates in terms of uh, 
co-promotion of events and uh, co uh, networks or other networks were distributing important content about um, about student visas and H-1B visas. So this is, uh, the embassy has come out recently in the last week with stories that uh, the embassy in India plans to hold more visa interviews than before the pandemic. That's the kind of si signal to the Indian market that, hey, we are open for business. We are going to do everything we can to make it easier for you to uh, apply for your student visas and then get to the United States. So that's encouraging. That's really encouraging. Uh, what is also another layer is, is understanding that need, that need for information uh, and to be upfront and, and honest with uh, your markets about as a government uh, and as uh, as the, the kind of the gatekeepers to for visas purposes. Uh, there, you also see how invested in the Indian market is in uh, U.S. employers uh, and and international firms, multinationals that have operations in the U.S. that maybe they want to go work for one day. You see in uh, another news story out of the Times of India, uh, this is something that is regularly getting press there. Uh, when, I, when I mentioned earlier any changes or lawsuits uh, that threaten OPT or H-1B, uh, always get regularly regular mentions in Indian newspapers and media sources. Uh, this article was is about the, uh, uh, the lawsuit that had been filed a couple of years, three or four years ago actually uh, uh, to um, challenge the legitimacy of OPT uh, as a as a detriment to U.S. workers. Uh, they are they, they, you, obviously the Trump administration and Biden administration both have filed in their defense of uh, OPT have filed um, uh, filed reports and, and briefs that uh, U.S. jobs are not threatened by uh, OPT and H-1B. In fact, uh, they, they point to the number of companies that uh, startups in, that have been created as a result uh, of international students or students that have come for H-1B. They point to um, the, the number of degrees that are offered in those fields that are not, going, that are not being awarded to U.S. students because they're not, U.S. students aren't enrolling in those STEM-related STEM programs at the same numbers. Uh, we've talked about that to ad infinitum here. But this Times of India story it talks about the U.S. companies, prominent U.S. companies, file amicus brief to support OPT for international students. Again, that's great PR for the U.S. in India because that those connections to work, post-study work, are absolutely essential and main drivers of interest in uh, in India uh, that are looking to where they go abroad. Uh, the UK has had a, seen an up, uptick because of their reintroduction of post-study work. Canada has seen huge jumps in India because of their hugely welcoming and open uh, immigration policies that uh, provide very clear pathways to work and, re and residency uh, after they're done with their studies. Australia has similar pathways as well, but because of entry requirements right now, they're not on the, they're not on the top hot list for Indian students. Uh, or as hot a list. So that's another great news story that makes sense for the United States. And the final one is really, it's, a, it's an article about uh, the cancellation of class 12 board exams uh, for students in India. And it, uh, anyone who's recruited there had conversations regularly with Indian students uh, before they arrive on campus, you know that it's in their DNA uh, in their culture, to they are a test-driven culture, much like Chinese are in that respect. 
But in India, the, these, these state boards, uh, these CBSEs, are it for students that are looking to go on to uh, to university, whether in country or outside there, outside India, and because of that interest, it's uh, if if now not having that 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 important what they've been building their entire academic careers towards as a pre-university preparation, not having that exam uh, is leaving them struggling for, for for in some point in some cases meaning and access to uh, to higher education options so there are a lot in a lot of folks in the US are, are a lot of Indians looking at the United States are wondering oh my goodness what happens if I, I won't have my my uh, my class 12 board exam results before I enroll uh, what am I going to do is the is the institution still going to allow me to start my studies and it's incumbent upon US colleges that you have policies in place to address these kind of issues. You may have already done this last year when say A-levels were canceled or IB exams were canceled uh, in various places. Uh, now you're do, doing it again this year with Gaokao and uh, CBSEs, CBSEs. So what you have to be proactive about this and keep your fingers on the pulse. That's why I obviously recommend subscribing to the newsletter uh, that will give you the kind of call outs when these kind of things are happening. But you, you want to be thinking about this and be proactive. So when you hear, hear, and hear the possibility this is happening, you can get a policy in place. Get communication out to your students. Even if you don't have a policy yet defined, let them know we're working on it. Okay, Because it, it, communicating something rather than not at all and just let it be crickets on a, on a very important issue for them is, 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 is something that can really hurt you long term if you're, if, you're, if you're silent on these important issues. Same thing on vaccination policies and entry requirements and study, study uh, state for the fall. That all matters. So the more proactive you are, the more you understand the many layers of the student experience, uh, particularly as it relates to India, the better prepared you are to enroll those students. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with that process. It's not an easy one. It's a very trying time of year, obviously, in the summer. But uh, we wish, uh, wish you at the, at the beginning of summer here that uh, your, uh, your fall season is, is everything uh, that you want it to be from orientation to uh, somewhat different recruitment season than last. But I uh, wish you all the best with that to come. So until next time, have a wonderful week. Cheers.